Perhaps the saddest reality to exist is the fact that there is sin and evil in the world. It wasn't always this way, but when Adam and Eve transgressed the commandment of God, the Bible teaches that that's the point where sin entered into the world, and all people are affected by it. And not just people, but also, the Scripture tells us, that the whole creation suffers under the curse of sin. But God has provided a way of salvation by sending His only begotten Son to the world to remove the eternal consequences of our sin through His own sacrificial death on the cross. And when a sinner becomes aware of their need for salvation and they confess their sins to God, they receive forgiveness in Him and they trust in Jesus for eternal life. We call this conversion. And Jesus tells us that unless we are converted and become humbled like children, we will not enter the kingdom of God. However, when our hearts and our minds do change, when conversion has taken place, we become, as the Bible says, born again. And we are, as the Bible also says, washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians six eleven. No longer are we cursed with the rest of mankind. No longer are we enemies of God. No longer are we under the punishment of God and the wrath of God. And because of Christ, we experience the blessings of forgiveness and freedom and hope for the future. However, we also know that even though we're redeemed in Christ, believers are still living in bodies that are under that curse. We ourselves are not cursed, but our bodies are still fleshly. And in our flesh, we still think sinful thoughts, say sinful words, and commit sinful acts. We still war with the old nature. Even the Apostle Paul lamented this daily battle as he recounts in Romans 7, just listen, for what I am doing, Paul says, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want to do. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which indwells me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members." Then he concludes, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he exhorts the Lord God. He says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And then his conclusion or his, the beginning of his argument in Romans 8 is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that is the good news. And so, knowing that we are redeemed in Christ, yet we still struggle in our flesh, in our old nature, the question is, well, then how are we to proceed? If even the Apostle Paul battled with this warfare of the flesh, what do we do? How do we, as he says in Romans 6, 11, consider ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus? And the answer is, we must be vigilant to guard ourselves and others against stumbling blocks, against stumbling blocks. And with that, we're going to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 18 in your Bible. Matthew 18, we're just marching right through this text. I know there are, I've told you this before, but there are 
There are times when we're going through our exposition where I, I look ahead at what we're going to and I get excited. I'm always excited about every Bible verse that I'm in, but some passages I'm like, oh, just wait till we get there. There's so much that's good there. And then we get there and I look ahead. Oh, there's more there. And I'm always excited about what's coming. But I've been looking at this chapter ahead months and months and going, there's so much that's wonderful here that's going to be helpful for this church things that we all need to know and learn and embody, things I need to know and things I need to practice. And so I'm just overjoyed to be in Matthew 18 with you for these coming weeks here. The events of Matthew 18 take place on the heels of Jesus' return from the Galilean region, or to the, to Galilean, the Galilean region. Along the way, the disciples have been talking amongst themselves about uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, as they're talking, they're walking to the port city of Capernaum, where they've been operating their ministry for the last several years. And as they're talking and arguing about who is the greatest, Jesus quickly uncovers this discussion, and He presses them with a direct question about uh, what, what is the meaning of all this. He says, what are you talking about while you were along the way? And because he's ultimately the only one who really knows the answer to this of who is the greatest. And so we read about this little interchange between the disciples and Jesus at the beginning of Matthew 18. We looked at this last week, but I want to refresh your memory here. Matthew 18, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so answering the question, Jesus uses a living illustration. He brings a little boy who is in the room with them. He brings this boy and brings him close to himself, and he begins to, to use this boy as an illustration to all these grown men. He tells this group of men that unless they become like children, they will not be great. To be great is to be humble like this little boy. Again, not sinless, not exceedingly wise, not self-sufficient. That's not what this boy represents, but this boy represents humility and dependence on the Lord God. And so the greatest in the kingdom is the one who is the most humble before God, who loves God and trusts God, trusting in Him completely. But this is not the end of the discourse. He doesn't just say, okay, be like children, then he moves on with his day. There's more. And for the entirety of chapter 18, we get a window into the heart of Christ. We get to see His heart here, where we see His love and His intention for His own children, His little ones. After all, everyone who belongs to God is regarded by the Lord as a child of God. And as we're going to see, He has a special desire to take care to protect His little ones from stumbling, as we're going to see in verses 5 through 9 to rescue His little ones when they begin to stray, verses 10 through 14, to discipline them when they sin, verses 15 to 20, and then to forgive them when they repent, verses 21 to 35. And so we're going to see how all this builds and builds and plays into each other. We're going to see the heart of Christ for His children in this chapter of Scripture. But none of this can be done from a heart that is full of pride and self-importance. We can't care for each other the way that we're supposed to if we're prideful and we're fleshly. We will never be able to treat one another in the way that Christ commands us to. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to explore how we can protect the Lord's little ones from ruin. And in verses 5 through 9, we essentially see two aspects of this protection, two aspects of of the Lord's protection. One involves guarding other people from falling into sin, and the other involves guarding ourselves. So let's begin with the first one. Number one, guarding others, verses 5, 6, and 7. Jesus, continuing in His discussion here, says, "...and whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me." But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. 
For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Here the Lord is expressing the union that He shares with His people. And we understand that this union comes by way of the Spirit of God indwelling us and binding us to the Lord. Jesus prays that reality in John chapter 17. It's a prayer to the Father, from the Son to the Father. And He says in John 17 and verse 22, The glory which you, and He's talking to the Father, have given to Me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And so we see almost this indistinguishable link. It's not indistinguishable, but there's an interconnected link between the Father and the Son and the church, the the little ones that belong to Him. Jesus here articulates the reality that we are united in Him just as He is united to the Father. Therefore, He says, whoever receives one such child, one of these little ones, whoever receives a child in My name receives Me. Again, that connection that we have between us and the Lord. A person who accepts a Christian is accepting Christ by virtue of our union with Him. Not that we become Jesus. You can't walk around and say, I am Jesus incarnate because of my unity with the Trinity. It doesn't work like that. But rather, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are delegates. We are envoys. When the ambassador to a country travels to another country and they receive that ambassador, that ambassador is nothing on their own, but they're coming on behalf of the prime minister or the president or the king of another nation. And so to receive the ambassador is to receive the leader. To reject the ambassador is to reject that country's leader. Same concept here. If people receive you in the name of Christ, it's as if they're receiving Christ. If they reject you, they reject Jesus. However, those who afflict His little ones, persecute them, or even cause them to stumble. They are effectively opposing Christ. And this is a very interesting connection that we see in Scripture. Just another example, in Acts 9-4, Saul of Tarsus, who will later be known as the Apostle Paul, he's on his way for the distinct purpose of persecuting Christians. He's traveling to a city, to Damascus, to persecute the church, And Jesus appears to him, confronts him, knocks him off his horse, and bellows out from the heavens, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he replies, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Notice that Jesus never says, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say that. He says, why are you persecuting me? Our union with Christ is so strong that Jesus feels our afflictions. He feels your afflictions, beloved. When you're in pain, you're not suffering by yourself. When you're suffering through something that no one else can understand, you've watched someone else in pain and you can't take it away, you can't feel it for them, but your heart just breaks for them, Jesus feels your pain. He knows your pain intimately. And so there's a connection, there's a union there. Where to persecute us is to persecute the Lord. The Lord knows that it is inevitable that Christians are going to fall into sin and to stumble. He knows this. It's inevitable we will stumble. Why? Well, because we're living in a corrupt world, dwelling in a fleshly, sinful body. That's why Jesus says in verse 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. This word woe is both an expression of judgment but it's also an expression of sorrow and lament over that judgment. It's essentially this, shame, shame on the world because of its stumbling blocks. That's the general sense of it. But what is a stumbling block? What are we talking about when we say woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks? The Greek word that it's used here is skandalon, skandalon. It's where we get our word scandalize or scandal. It's literally, however, a snare or a trap. In the Greek, it's literally a trap that is set with the purpose of catching and ensnaring an animal in order to kill it. But in a spiritual sense, it's any obstacle or trap that ensnares a person and brings them in for the kill 
to cause them to sin. For example, what is a stumbling block in the world? It's a a bright neon sign that's advertising an adult nightclub designed to lure people in. And when a person sees that big sign, it draws them to that place where they're going to commit sin. That is a stumbling block. That is something that the world sets up in place to draw us in, to ensnare us, to get us to stumble into sin. And so a scandalon, a snare, a stumbling block. And Jesus says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. And I would not even have the time between now and the end of my ministry to enumerate all of the stumbling blocks that are in the world. They're everywhere you turn. And some stumbling blocks exist for some of us and others not so much. There's different kinds of temptations that we experience. But Jesus, and I want to be very clear, Jesus hates anything and everything that would trip up his little ones into sin. He hates all these stumbling blocks. And yet, because of the fallenness of the world, he adds this, it is inevitable. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. It's going to happen. He knows that while the world is under the curse and under the domain of darkness, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come and trip us up into stumbling into sin. There's no way to stop it, at least in this life. It's going to happen. And so therefore, he says this, but woe, woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Woe to the person who puts up that sign. Woe to the person who entices a believer. Woe to the person who sends a link with a picture in it. Woe to a person who entices a person, hands them a bottle when they're an alcoholic. Woe to any person who would put a stumbling block in front of a believer to cause them to sin. Jesus pronounces judgment and lament over that action and over that person. During the early church, the years of the early church, many Christians during these times, the first two and three hundred years, grew very tired of all the paganism that was in the Roman world, and many of them moved out of the cities into less populated areas to live. Many of them moved into caves because that was secluded. They became what we know to be monks. They were living a monastic life. Some of them, however, fearing even walking among the people, would be even more extreme than that. What they would do is they would actually build these tall pillars, 20 or sometimes 30 feet up in the air. They would climb to the top of these pillars where there would be a perch like a pad, and they would sit up there. They would live at the top of this pillar, assuming and believing that if they lived up there, away from all people, they could actually be preserved from worldliness and preserved from sin. But then this is what would happen. Wicked women and prostitutes would come in from the cities and they would stand at the base of the, of the pillar and they would disrobe and they would taunt the men who were sitting on the top of these pillars. And so now they're stuck because they can't climb down because then they have to face this person, but they can't, what, what do they do? You're stuck. And these women were standing there as stumbling blocks to those who were trying to escape the trials and the sins of the world. Same idea, stumbling blocks, those people, those those individuals who are setting themselves up and setting things up for us to stumble into. Verse 6, Jesus carrying this forward, he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Here he promises to avenge his little ones, his believers by judging the one who causes them to fall into sin. But, and we see the severity of the judgment. We went through this in more detail last week, but these are, I, I still have a hard time reading verse 6. Verse 6 is difficult for me. I don't like to see this image in my mind, but that's the point. That's why Jesus says what he says, because it's an awful image to think about attaching a 500-pound stone to a person's neck and shoving them off and drowning them to the bottom of the sea. That's a terrible thought. But Jesus says that that judgment for them to experience is better than the judgment he is going to unleash on them because they are causing us to stumble into sin. It's a sobering thing. It's probably the most severe and sobering thing I can find him saying in the Scriptures. One of them at least. He says that it's a better punishment 
than someone who would than what somebody would receive if they were to cause us to stumble into sin. Again, this gives you some idea of just how bad the judgment is going to be for Satan, who is the master tempter. If Jesus is saying this about individuals, humans who cause us to stumble, what about demons and what about the enemy? Sometimes I think that when we are tempted into sin and we fall into sin and we feel afflicted by the enemy, we somehow think that, oh, curse you, Satan, I hope you get your due. But the truth of the matter is, is that that beast is going to suffer more than any other created being in the history of the world. The one who stalks Christians, the Bible says, like a roaring lion seeking to devour them. But we are frequently exhorted in Scripture to be careful, to be careful about this. Paul warns in Romans 14, 13 in terms of stumbling. He says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Because we think about the judgment, we think about what's going to happen if we cause a person to stumble. And then we see the resolution, the resolve in Scripture. He says, let's resolve not to do this to each other. Then he gives an example of young believers who are coming out of paganism. And Paul says, they've been struggling because they're, they've, been eating, they've been sacrificing animals to false gods, and now they come out of paganism into Christianity, and they watch a believer who takes a piece of meat or an animal that's been sold at the market, who's been sacrificed to an idol, and they eat it, and they dine on this animal, and it doesn't bother them a bit. Their conscience isn't captive. But for the new believer who is struggling in conscience, Paul warns about this. He says, don't do something like that if it's going to cause them to stumble into sin. Now, if you don't know, you don't know. But if you're doing this and saying, well, I can eat whatever I want, and if you can't deal with it, it's too bad for you. The Bible never tells us we're allowed to do that. You can't cause somebody to stumble. Don't violate their conscience. He makes the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The idea here is watch out for each other. Now, again, we, we can't do this and become neurotic and be so scared we can't lift a finger. I don't know if I want to lift this water bottle because it might offend somebody. We can't live like that. But if you're living and you're doing something that you know causes someone else to stumble and you do it, the Lord is not pleased with you. Paul said it's better to not do that, to withhold, to, to sacrifice your liberty and to, with, to refrain to keep your brother or your sister from stumbling into sin. If it's just an issue of personal liberty for you, but it's conscience for them, let your liberty go. But Paul goes even further than this, Romans 16, 17. Paul even exhorts the church to stand guard. Stand guard now. He says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. The word hindrance is scandalon, same word, which is contrary to the teaching you've learned. He says, turn away from them. Turn away from those who would seek to scandalize the church and cause believers to stumble. And this happens. There are those who come into the church and their purpose, and they don't tell anybody, nobody knows yet, but their purpose is to cause the church to stumble. They want to destroy the body of Christ. And they'll sit there and they'll stand and sing and look like they're praying and they'll have their Bible open, but deep down they are meditating on ways that they can cause people to stumble. And Paul says, this exists, watch out. And if you see it, keep your eye. Literally in the Greek, it's mark that person. Put, your, put a target like a scope, put a target right on them and wait and watch what they're doing. Again, not, not paranoia, but if you know that this is happening, be on guard. And he says, reject them because they're already under judgment. And so, again, what is the big idea here? The Lord desires that we guard and protect other believers from stumbling and falling into sin. We watch out for each other. We're, we're careful. We're sensitive to their, other people's consciences. We're sensitive to how they're doing spiritually. We're sensitive to things that they've struggled with in their past life. We're sensitive to the words that we say. And I'll tell you, it, it costs you a lot sometimes. Sometimes you have to sacrifice some liberty or some comfort. But you know, it's better. It's better to sacrifice a little yourself in this life 
and rescue and save a person from stumbling into sin. So guard other people. Guard other believers. Watch them. Help them. Pray for them. Encourage them in the faith. And then in verses 8 and 9 of our narrative passage here, Matthew 18, he then shifts his focus just a bit. Verses 8 and 9. From guarding others to guarding ourselves. On the heels of warning the disciples about stumbling blocks, he adds this, verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. Now, before we move ahead, I have to, every time I read this verse, I have to do the footnote. You have to say it because there's always going to be one person who's like, wait a second. Maybe I need to get extreme here. Maybe I'm not being extreme enough. The Lord never tells us to harm our bodies physically. This is meant to be metaphor and hyperbole. He never tells you to cut off your body parts or pluck out your eyes. And there have been people throughout church history, some people have gone to extremes and done such things. And it's not what the Lord intends at all. How do we know? How do you know the Lord is not telling us to be violent against our own bodies? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 teaches us that our body, our physical body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. He's living in us. And so therefore, we are to steward the body, the steward the body that we've been given. He never tells us to harm our body, hurt our body, maim our physical bodies. It's against the will of God. And so we are, we are called to take care of the body that we have. Because the longer you can live in this body and be a light in the world, the, the more you're useful to God. It doesn't do you any good to damage your physical body. Second of all, even if we did cut off a hand or pluck out an eye, it would not stop our hearts from sinning. You could cut off every possible thing that you could and still remain alive and you would still be a sinner. Nothing's going to change that. Contrary to what the ascetics believed, the ascetics are those who punish themselves thinking they were virtuous, it's not your body that makes you holy or unholy. It does not prevent sinfulness. This is surely what Paul was referring to in Colossians chapter 2, Verses 20 to 23, he says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Extreme laws about rigid teaching on the body here, which all refer to things that are destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom, and self-made religion, but they're, or he says, but they're self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, what he's saying is all these rules that we set up for ourselves, all these ways that we punish ourselves, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay up all night because that's going to be virtuous for me. Again, I'm not talking about being convicted to pray and, and stay awake and be vigilant. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who believe that punishing themselves in and of itself is virtuous. That's nothing in Scripture. Hurting yourself, starving yourself unnecessarily, treatment of your body, poor treatment of your body, all those things. He goes, that's, Paul says, that's self-made religion. That's paganism. That's not of Christ. No, Christ wants you to take care of the body that you've been given. And so we know the Lord does not desire us to hurt ourselves physically, but rather He's employing the use of, a, of an extreme metaphor to illustrate the seriousness of our spiritual warfare. Now, if you remember way back into Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, He's already used this illustration once in the Sermon on the Mount. He said these exact same things. There's very little difference between this occurrence of these, these phrases and that occurrence. There's a, a difference of uh, a couple of words, the word order has changed a little bit, and he adds a couple of modifiers, but otherwise, the illustrations here and the meaning are the exact same. 
Let's look again at verse 8. He says here, again, with, with metaphor, with symbolism, with, uh, with uh, hyperbole, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. This first example is of a hand or a foot that causes you to stumble into sin. Now, what do hands and feet represent? Your hands or your feet, they represent the things that you do or the places that you go. You work a job, you usually use your hands and you usually use your feet. These are external behaviors, beloved, external behaviors that could potentially lead you into sin. They can scandalize you, they can ensnare you, they can trap you into sin. This may be a job that you have. I've known believers who their job causes them to stumble into sin. Or maybe it's a hobby that you have, or an activity, or a place that you like to go. There are some people that shouldn't go certain places because that causes them to stumble. Maybe it's an exercise or an action. Anything that your hand or your foot finds to do that habitually leads you into sin. What do you do if you discover that's happening? Do you just say, well... I got it under control. It's going to be okay. At at least I have faith in Jesus, and you know, if I fall into sin, He'll forgive me. Does the Bible ever teach that? No, never. Never, never, never. If you find something that your hand or your foot is causing you to do that is sinful, Jesus says, cut it off and throw it from you. Cut it off. This is vivid enough, isn't it? Sever, get rid of, cut off. And even in the, the Greek word for throw here, uh, balo is to, to not just throw, but it's a, to expel violently, to pitch across the room. That's the idea. You cut it off and you throw it from you. You get rid of it. This is aggressive language. Aggressive language. What about verse 9? If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. What does the eye represent? Well, the eye, for starters, includes what you look at. We are a culture that is infatuated with looking at things that we're not supposed to look at. Whether that be something that is explicit and immoral, or even just something that's not good for you. You could obsess, you could go on to Pinterest, which is nothing at all, but that can cause you to stumble into sin. It can cause you to covet. It can cause you to, to just agonize and, and lust after things that you don't have. It can waste all your time. You become fruitless and fall into apathy. Whatever it is, again, that's just your eye, but it's more than that. It's actually more than just what you look at. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What is he saying? The eye is the window into your soul. It's not just what you look at externally. It's also internal, everything internal. This includes also what you, what you watch, what you listen to, the fantasies that you indulge in, what you think about, what you're preoccupied with, about God, about others, about yourself. And so with our eyes, we lust. With our eyes, we covet. With our eyes, we find fault in other people and judge them, and we plot and we scheme their destruction. And so he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, tear it out, gouge it out, and throw it from you. Pitch it as far as you can. This is radical, extreme behavior. But I would contend that this is not radical in the way that you might think it is. See, we tend culturally to think about something being radical is something that's sort of manic or crazy or out of control or zealous. We think, we think about radicals and they're just totally unpredictable and they're off, off the reservation. See a guy walking around the woods talking to the trees, you're like, that guy's radical, right? We, we, we think about extreme sort of out there language. But the Bible doesn't paint that kind of picture. Instead, we see the picture in the Scripture of a person who's settled and resolute and disciplined, and who becomes firm in their footing in Christ. 
Even if you think about Ephesians chapter 6, which is the famous armor of God passage, right? Anytime we think about spiritual warfare, you go to Ephesians chapter 6 and you read those and you belt those verses out. But three times in four verses, we are told to do what? To stand firm. Not get crazy. Not flip out. Stand firm. Again, steadfast, disciplined, resolute, serious-minded. That is to be the flavor of our warfare. Now, there are times when we must cut it off and pluck it out. That's part of our warfare, yes. But once we've taken such an action... We must then hold the line and, as Paul says, do everything we can to stand firm. If your TV or your computer is causing you to stumble, get rid of it. That's the severe behavior. But the temptation then is to go back and buy another one or to use your spouse's laptop and then fall right back into the behavior. I remember I was working with and counseling a man who had an addiction and his computer was the main culprit of this addiction. And so he went out and said, that's it, I'm going to get rid of my computer. And, and the next thing you know, he stumbles back into the same sin. Well, how did that happen? I thought you get rid of your computer. Come to find out he was using one of his children's iPhones. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. There's always a way to fall back in. So it's not just about being aggressive and violent and throwing it away. It's about keeping it away and standing firm. Another illustration, I remember hearing a story from a pastor friend of mine, and he was counseling a couple through adultery, and the husband had confessed, and he had apologized, confessed to his adultery, and the wife was prepared to forgive, and they were working toward reconciliation. But then the question was arising about whether or not this adulterous relationship was actually over, and the man swore up and down that it was. No, I'm done. I'm done with that person. It's, it's all over, until he discovered or they discovered that he had a key to her apartment. At that point, the the pastor told the husband, if you really want to reconcile with your wife, hand me the house key. And the man got angry. He said, it's over. The relationship's over. What does it matter? So the pastor said, well, then hand me the key. He didn't do it. He couldn't do it because he had not plucked it out and thrown it from him. You have to be willing not just to cut it off, cut off the thing that stumbles, that causes it to stumble, but also to throw it away from you so that you can never get it back. What if I don't want to? I don't want to get rid of my hobby. I like my hobby. I don't want to throw away the phone. I need my phone. I don't want to delete Facebook. I share my photos with my friends. I don't want to stop talking to that guy. He's nice to me. But the Lord commands, if anything in your life causes you to stumble into sin, get rid of it. Get rid of it. And then he says here, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame or even with one eye than to have all your body parts intact and yet be cast into eternal fire. Verse 9, he uses the word here for fiery hell, Gehenna. Gehenna was a place in Israel where they dumped all their trash to be burned. The time of Ahaz, it had been a place of idol worship where they had offered up their own children as sacrifices to their false gods over an open open flame. But King Josiah put a, a stop to all the sacrifices and he turned that site into a garbage dump as if to curse the place that was cursed. And so it wasn't just that the fires were burning constantly. It wasn't just the fire. But also the fire was a a reminder that there was a cursed memory of this place. This was a place of grief and a place of judgment. And so when Jesus talks about judgment, he uses Gehenna as the perfect illustration to all the Jews listening in, in in front of him. This is what happens when you go to hell. You go to a place of cursing, of judgment, of fires, of condemnation. And you do that apart from God's saving grace. God actually does save us from that condemnation. Now, Jesus is not saying that you have to stop sinning in order to be saved. Otherwise, from what are you being saved? He never says that we have to be perfect and then we are saved. And I've met so many people, 
I'll share the gospel and they'll say, I got too much stuff in my life, Pastor. I, I just can't. What do you mean you can't? I got I to clean some things up first. Maybe when I'm on my deathbed, maybe then. And I'm thinking, my friend, deathbed, you don't even know when, that, when that's going to be. And, and why would you try to clean up your life before you come to Christ? You can't clean up your life apart from Christ. Christ is the one who ministers to you and heals you and forgives you and, and helps you. So we're saved by God's free grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. So Jesus is never saying, you must be perfect in order to come to me. However, one result of salvation is a changed heart, a heart that actually begins to hate the sin that's in you. You despise your sin, and, and, and conversely, you also you begin to love God, and you love righteousness, and you desire holiness. A Christian doesn't look for opportunities and loopholes to sin. Well, I didn't technically do the bad thing. I just kind of like brushed up against it. That's okay, right? We don't talk like that. We don't think that way. No, Christians say, I don't want to even tempt myself into sin. And then when we do sin, it grieves us terribly. And we become fearful. Lord, I'm, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to anger you, Lord. You hate my sin, and so do I. Beloved, this is a heart change. A person who comes to Christ, but then engages in the very same prolonged, unrepentant sin, gives no evidence at all that they've been born again. I'm not talking about tripping and stumbling and falling. I'm talking about a person who runs headlong into the old sins and the old ways, with no regard for Christ. This is why Hebrews 10.26 warns, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. If you've heard the gospel and you give assent to it, oh yeah, I believe that, and nothing in you ever changes, and you just keep on running into sin and chasing your old life, the Bible says there's no sacrifice for you. Nothing has changed you. The gospel's never taken root. And so I would exhort you, don't risk hell so that you can sin here. It's not worth it. Your habits and your hobbies and your desires, and your sinful relationships, and your popularity, and all of your escapes, and your pampering, and your comfort, and your indulgence, none of it's worth it. It's better to come into heaven hobbling and limping along, but then you make it, than to be fully formed and living your best life now and to plunge yourself into hell. Nothing in this life is worth it, beloved. And woe to the person or thing that causes you to stumble. Nothing is worth it. Christ cares about your spiritual health. He cares about your heart. He cares that you grow. You are His little ones. The ones who believe in Him and who love Him. And He doesn't want you to stumble into sin. And He actually judges those who cause you to stumble into sin. But again, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. They will come. And for those of you who heard a gospel and believed that if you trusted in Jesus that you'd stop sinning and all that would be over... I'm sorry for you, and I just have to break that bad news to you that you will still struggle in this life. Sin still exists in your body and in your heart somewhere, and it still hurts you. It still will affect you. However, we do have a Lord, a Savior, who has gone to the cross and died for us. So yes, we will stumble, but beloved, don't invite sin in either by your foolishness or your carelessness 
or your selfishness. Get serious. Get serious about it. Pray through, Lord, what is it in my life? Now, as a preacher, I always get nervous about naming specific things publicly only because for some of you it might be a source of sin, for others it might not. I've already said things like Facebook and Pinterest and whatever else, but honestly, it's different for everybody. For some of you, those things are pathways and highways to hell. For others of you, you can click it off, put it away, and it doesn't cause you to sin. So nobody can tell you exactly what those pathways are. There are things I think that are very clear, which I won't say publicly, but you understand the point. You know what I'm talking about. There are things that cause you to stumble. Don't do it. Get serious. Get mean. Get violent against your sinful impulses. Stand firm in the faith. Pastor, but what do I do if I do fall into sin? What do I do if I stumble? Turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to close here. John is the apostle of love, as they say. These themes of love and light are repeated all throughout his writings. And John gets very serious about sin and repentance in chapter 1. And then John, no doubt learning this designation from our Lord Jesus Christ, calls us little children. 1 John chapter 2, my little children, he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the one who stops the wrath of God on our behalf. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. And by this we know we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word... In Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. This could be a commentary on those verses in Matthew 18. You can't say you love Jesus and love your sin and chase it down every chance you get. If you love God and you've been born again, and you really are His little one, His child, and you have a sacrifice, a propitiation for your sins, and you have an advocate with the Father, then walk. Walk as children of light. Glorify God. Don't live your life in paranoia and panic. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to sin today. I hope I don't. Just live to glorify the Lord. Follow Him every single chance you get. Do everything you can in your power to make Him much in your life and to give Him glory. And if you do fall into sin, you know what to do. You repent. You humble yourself before God. Lord, forgive me for my sin. I hate these stumbling blocks. I hate that I sin. Forgive me. Oh, Lord, you are my advocate. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me grace. Thank you for restoring me. Now help me to live, Lord. Protect me from these stumbling blocks. Help me to live. And when you find forgiveness, beloved, you walk. You don't stop. You just keep on walking. And when Satan attacks you and says, oh, don't forget your sin, you say, shut your mouth. And you walk. And you live for God and you honor Him and you bring Him glory. And one day when you go to heaven and you'll be missing digits, maybe even an eye or two, but you will will receive a restored body, a brand new body in heaven. 
And with those brand new eyes that see clearly, you will behold the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with a brand new sinless tongue, you'll praise him. That's what we're going for, beloved. Chase him with all your heart. Lord God, we pray. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for these powerful words of scripture. And Lord, we, we lament our sinful condition. It seems like it stalks us everywhere we go. Even if it's not flagrant sins, it's the sins of the heart that damn us. It's our thoughts and our intentions and the words that we say and the ways that we hurt others. It's all these secret sins, Lord, that creep up. It's the stumbling blocks of the world. It's all of it. That's why Paul says, wretched man that I am. We echo that prayer, Lord. And yet you are so good to us. You have demonstrated such loving kindness and mercy and tenderness where you scoop us up in your arms as little children and you love us and you forgive us and you bear us up on your own shoulders and you tell us to rest in you and to follow you and to take up your your yoke which is light. And so, Lord, we look to you and we trust you. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has been struggling in sin, maybe they don't know you, maybe they've just heard the gospel, assume they're all set, but now they realize that they're dead without you. I pray that you would get a hold of their heart and change them, that they would confess you as Christ, forsake their life of sin and run after you, Lord, by faith. And Lord, if there are those in our congregation who are struggling with indwelling sins, sins that just won't let go, I pray that you would administer to them and help them. Help them to take it seriously. Not just bellyache about their failures and lament their condition, but really stand firm and cut off every possible spiritual appendage they have to to block these things from making them trip up and get serious about their walk and run hard after you, Lord to put off the things that cause us to sin and put on the righteous deeds of Christ. Lord, we cannot do this by ourselves. This is not us pulling us up from our bootstraps, Lord. We need you. Lord, if this church is going to become sanctified, you have to do it. And so I beg you, as an under-shepherd, a lowly shepherd here, the least of all shepherds here, Lord, I beg you, to sanctify your bride and to help your little ones not to stumble, but to walk in righteousness and do the things that please you. I pray all this in the name of our most holy God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.